0: Zoom. So, hopefully you all survived the exam last week and are ready to go again, right? So, so, I need to kind of pick up where I left off last time and we'll start a little bit looking at kinase uh, signaling and then take a little bit look at some uh, cell scaffolding proteins and how they function and how various modular domains and, and adaptors and proteins can regulate the, their function. And so this is here the various things that we'll cover in the uh, class and then some basic objectives, what you should have from that. So we left off last time talking about how once RAS is loaded with GTP, it is active and then able to uh, interact with various uh, downstream target proteins. There are a number of these, the three most uh, characterized are these three right here. And we just started to focus on the, the RAS-RAF uh, interaction, so that's we will continue. So, once Ras is active, it binds RAF and recruits it to the membrane through the association of the RAF binding domain on RAF. And RAF then phosphorates another kinase called MEK, which phosphorates another kinase called ERK. And ERK can phosphorate lots of different things in the cell, uh, in which uh, include uh, nuclear transcription factors, which can drive gene expression, uh, which is important for ras induced uh, proliferation. So if we work our way backwards up through this uh, cascade of kinases here, first of all, why do we have so many kinases, do you think? Thoughts on that? Sorry? Yeah, crosstalk is good for uh, cross-regulation from different pathways. Amplification. Each time you actually go through another reiteration, there's probably a thousand-fold increase in the signal strength. Um, Feedback, regulation, crosstalk, those types of things are really useful there. So, the uh, bottom kinase in this cascade is ERK. Uh, horrible name. It means extracellular receptor activated kinase. I hate that name. Don't need to remember it if you remember ERK. It's a member of the MAP kinase family. That's probably worth remembering, uh, which means mitogen activated protein kinases. So, the reason we mention it is that there are, we'll come back to it in the next slide, there are a whole bunch of those uh, kinases and what kind of the family of them, which is why, uh, hence the name. So ERK is a MAP kinase, and it is phosphorylated by MEK, which basically means uh, MAP kinase or ERK kinase. And so MEK is a kinase that phosphorylates MAP kinase. So it's a MAP kinase kinase. Get silly, okay? Uh, So then RAF is a kinase which phosphorylates MEK, and MEK is a MAP kinase kinase kinase. kinase. So RAF is a kinase that phosphorylates that, so it's a MAP kinase 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 kinase. Okay? So, that gives you the idea then, think of these as like map 1K, 2K, and 3K, is we think of that. So, it's basically a cascade of kinases. And these, these cascades are highly conserved, and there are a number of them, and we'll touch on those a little bit in the next two or three slides. So, this cascade is very important in terms of regulating gene expression downstream of RAS, and also many other uh, targets of RAS. And, as a consequence, we talked about RAS is important in cancer, it's mutated in 20% of human cancers. And so, drugs which actually inhibit the uh, RAF or MEK uh, kinases uh, have been uh, tried out in clinical trials trying to inhibit uh, cancer. BemaRafinib, for example, uh, specifically targets uh, an oncogenically mutated version of BRAF. There are various inhibitors of, of MEK which are in the clinic. Um additionally, uh, a protein found in the anthrax bacterium and also in the Yersinia black plague bacterium are actually proteases, which actually cleave the macroprotein, and therefore the uh, these bacteria are actually targeting this kinase cascade to try to uh, uh, disable function. So normally, uh, when you are infected, say with uh, anthrax, your macrophages try to mount an uh, immune response, and by uh, blocking signals to this cascade, you reduce the early inflammatory response to the bacteria. Uh, so how do they do that? Uh, they actually are proteases, which cleave off part of the protein. So remember we just touched on in the last class that kinase specificity sometimes comes in part from the ability of a non-catalytic part of the kinase to bind to a domain or sequence on, another, on a substrate, and that then presents the uh, substrate sequence to the uh, kinase. So in this case, the N terminus of MEC binds to a docking site on the ERK uh, protein, and this then enables the catalytic domain of MEC to actually phosphorylate the uh, uh, activation loop of ERK. So if the uh, anthrax cl- protease cleaves off the N terminus of MEC, it can no longer bind to ERK, and therefore that cascade is now being um, um, disabled. If you can't find your substrate, you can't phosphorize it very efficiently. And so, there will be a little bit of uh, encounter, but there will be very little activation work in this case. Okay? So, the reason I went through the whole MAP1K, 2K, 3K, is that there are a number of different uh, MAP caninous cascades in the cell. So, uh, this one on the the left here is the one that uh, RAS is activating. But there are other uh, stress and growth factor inputs, which not necessarily RAS proteins, but other mechanisms can acti- activate these uh, cascades. So, in addition to the ERKs, there are P38 and junk and other ERK family members that are MAP kinases. They all have these unique uh, sequences with a threonine and a tyrosine in their activation loop and different uh, MAP kinase kinases. Can phosphorylate the threonine and tyrosine on these activation loops. These are dual specificity kinases, in the mix. and so um, so ultimately you, you end up with the phosphorylation of various key proteins, including transcription factors, uh, to regulate uh, biological responses. So many of these cascades were first found in yeast, and in yeast, for example, there is a pheromone response, so that uh, haploid yeast encounter each other and decide they want to mate and become diploid. They uh, have a map kinase cascade, uh, which goes through, actually a map 4K as well, It gets even more fun, uh, where one kinase phosphates another, ultimately resulting in the regulation of the, the uh, map kinase plus 3 which will regulate particular gene expression to control uh, mating. However, and so these, many of these kinases are called STE because uh, mutation of these proteins cause sterility in the yeast, and so these are sterility-causing proteins. So, it gets kind of confusing because you start looking at uh, when these are star- starving, they go through this filamentous invasion stage, and the same MAP kinase, MEK and, uh, and MAP kinase, 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 are involved here as well, and even the same uh, 4K is used here, and this MAP 3K is also being used in, an, in a uh, uh, high osmolarity response. So how does the yeast know whether it should be mating or starving? It gets a little complicated for the yeast. Um, And the way it gets around this is to using scaffold proteins. So, the simplest one to look at is this middle one here, where the uh, MAP2K combined the other kinases in the cascade, and also the proteins which uh, are osmolality sensors. And so only when the sensors turn on do you get signaling through this cascade. Uh, if you look at the uh, pheromone response, so the pheromone receptor in yeast is actually a G-protein coupled receptor, and so once the uh, mating factor is bound to the receptor, there's G-protein activation, and the G-beta gamma can actually bind to the sterile protein. So you have uh, the receptor coupled to the scaffold, and so you only get signaling through these three macanase proteins if this particular scaffold is recruited to the receptor. And so you have uh, isolation of different uh, proteins to different uh, clusters. Mm-hmm. So this way, the yeast knows whether it should be uh, uh, responding to starvation or mating instead. Yeah. Um, it will. Uh, the pheromone uh, receptor will activate this the G beta gamma, release it, and it, it will actually bind the sterile 5 and couple it to the receptors, so that only happens when there is receptor activation. Uh, there are additional steps where the sto is not in the right conformation to bind the MAP kinases until signal comes in. I was going to come back to that in, in a couple of slides from now. Um, so there's more layers of, of regulation there. So the input from the receptor is going to dictate the recruitment of the scaffold, and the scaffold is not actually going to be fully functional either until it can um, receive the input. Okay? So, is the alpha um, It probably has another role, yeah. Uh, I actually can't tell you what it does. Um, but um, offhand, I, I believe it activates a. Let's see. No, I'm actually not sure what the G alpha does in, in use, actually. So, uh, not relevant to what Matt cascade, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, uh, I forgot. I, I'm sure I used to know, but I just can't think of it. Um, yeah. Good. good question. Um, so um, so I'm just going to use this then as an example for how useful scaffolds can be as far as increasing the uh, specificity and efficiency of the reaction. So if you have just a random molecules bubbling around in a cell, a kinase finding its substrate can be a rather random and inefficient process. But if you can actually uh, result in these being all uh, grouped on a, a scaffold molecule, you can maybe have this uh, be more efficient. And if the scaffold maybe even modifies the conformation of the substrate or the kinase, that may actually trigger its activation and again add another layer of regulation to the process. This example here is suggesting you see that maybe the scaffold is somehow uh, introducing the kinase to the uh, uh, substrate by forcibly bringing them together. Additionally, if the uh, scaffold protein shown here in, in green is associated with a particular subcellular localization site, this gray is meant to mean like a plasma membrane, nuclear membrane, cytoskeleton, something like that. If the scaffold can be coupled there, then this reaction is only going to occur at that subcellular local, locale. And so that can provide another layer of uh, specificity. So you can improve the efficiency, uh, specificity of interaction, location of interaction. Uh, by having the, the scaffold proteins. So it greatly improves the ability for a cell to communicate. So, if uh, scaffold protein, uh, it's, uh, scap- protein is missing, is the uh, first, first uh, pathways do uh, kind of carry on or just slower? Much less efficiently, yeah. But it yeah. Carry on. you could you can still get some it, it, if it's purely just introducing molecules to each other, then they will still bump into it each other occasionally and something might happen, but it's not going to be the same efficiency. It might be down tenfold or a thousandfold in efficiency compared to not having a scaffold. Particularly if it's involving localization as well. That's a good point. And we will actually see an example of that in, in, in one of the slides further down. So, just use this slide just to, uh, you don't need to know details here. But I just want to point out, so this Scaffolds of primal kinases were first found in in yeast, and we thought, gee, they must exist in mammalian cells, too. It took us a long time to find them. The first one that was found was this uh, KSR, uh, and it coupled the raf mec cascade together, and typically when this happens, the ERK then dimerizes and goes to the nucleus to drive gene expression. But uh, the kinase cascade can also be scaffolded by a protein called paxillin, which are in focal adhesions, the sites where the extracellular matrix, uh, um, the cells bind to extracellular matrix and anchor, uh, you have focal adhesions, and one of the proteins there is called paxillin, and it actually enables ERP to be activated there and to phosphorylate another kinase called focal adhesion kinase, and this is specifically going to regulate the uh, anchoring of the cells to the the matrix and establishing uh, stress fibers at that point, and so you have localized regulation uh, by ERP specifically by recruiting this uh, scaffold there. Additionally, I touched on, and maybe uh, Gary Oxford may have also touched on, that when uh, receptors are activated, they then get internalized, and that kind of removes them from signaling. But uh, when internalization occurs, the extracellular domain is going to be buried in the, the lumen of the endosome, but the intracellular domain is still pointing out into the cytosol. And often on the endosomes, there may be a, a different scaffold that might couple the ERP to different substrate proteins. And so, again, different locations can result in different substrates being phosphorylated uh, maybe later, maybe 10 minutes after the initial signal happened at the plasma membrane, the receptor gets internalized, and then you actually have signals occurring inside before things get off off into the lysosome for degradation or recycled back to the membrane. So you don't need to know the details here. Of, uh, the concept here was just trying to show that different scaffolds can uh, uh, bring the same kinase into different places in the cell to achieve different jobs. So if ERC has 120 substrates, for example, I'm not sure exactly how many, it is a lot. Uh, how does it phospholip one protein versus another in a certain context? So, I've, And this is just going to point out that you have uh, all these scaffolds, also for all the other different uh, MAP kinase cascades, here are the various uh, junk uh, kinases, which are one of the other uh, MAP kinases, and there are various different uh, scaffolds, which you can couple them through deep blood and coupled receptors, growth factor receptors, and so forth in the same way. And this slide helps answer your question a little bit. Uh, so in the case of the sterile protein, ordinarily in uh, resting yeast, it can't uh, couple all the kinases together. It's it's only after the cell is activated that this particular domain here can interact with the membrane or with the uh, beta-gamma subunits in the membrane, and this causes a conformational change in the protein, so now it's in the right place. It interacts with the uh, um, receptor, and now it can bind all the kinases and facilitate the function. Otherwise, these kinases can't bind because of the conformation of the uh, scaffold is inappropriate. Okay. So, that uh, is covering the map uh, kinase as an example of a cascade. I just want to show one other um, uh, scaffold protein, and um, these are called ACAPs, or A kinase anchoring proteins, which uh, play a role primarily in localizing the static A and P-dependent protein kinases in different places in the cell. And they do so by virtue of the fact, we talked about how the static A and P-dependent protein kinase has a regular subunit. Which actually binds us out to AMP, then the catalytic subunit, which is released to, to do its job, and the regular subunit has a alpha-helical kind of structure, and it sits kind of like the uh, the hot dog in a bun, uh, sitting in the A cap. Think of the A cap being the bun and the uh, regular subunit being the uh, the um, uh, sausage here, uh, and so um, when if the P binds, it not only results in the release of the catalytic subunit, but if the uh, holo complex here is localized to a particular place in the cell through the ACAF, then the pKa activity is going to be localized into to that area of the cell when cytokine P levels go up. And this ensures that only substrates close to that site in the cell are going to be uh, targeted rather than perhaps the whole cell. And there are a lot of A caps in cells, and this is showing a uh, cardiac myocyte heart muscle cell. And you can see in, in purple here there are a number of different A caps which can associate with different uh, receptors or structures. We have G, excuse me, <coughs> uh, G protein coupled receptors, ion channels, uh, actin, cytoscales, intermediate filaments, sarcoplasmic uh, reticulum, and uh, nucleus here. And so this means that you can have different uh, regulation in different parts of the cell. And the ACAPs, as was shown in this little slide here, in addition to just localizing things in one place, tend to bind to other proteins as well. And we will focus on this guy here on, on the left, this uh, Yo Chow. And so, as you can see, in addition to binding the uh, pKa, it actually binds to Dental a cyclic AMP phosphodiesterase, uh, and the protein flositase. So. Uh a signal comes into the cell and you get activation of the cyclase say by a G protein coupled receptor. Cytogain P is made, it can then bind to the kinase and the kinase can phosphorylate uh, the, the uh, ion channel. But you have the phosphodesterase, which will actually cleave the cytogain P, so there's no more second messenger left. And also the phosphatase, which will dephosphorylate after the pKase and its drop. So this means that you can have very Tight controlled uh, regulation of the phosphorylation deep process. The second messenger is tightly controlled. Uh, the phosphorylation, deposphorylation are controlled. This really helps uh, very tight localized uh, regulation of the process. So, just to try and emphasize the importance of that, this uh, complex really is involving the regulation of this uh, uh, inward rectifying uh, potassium channel, uh, which is very important in your heartbeat. And so, normally during the process of each heartbeat, you have phosphorylation of the uh, uh, ion channel and then dephosphorylation. just has to occur very quickly. And if the whole process can occur quickly, then you will uh, have a cardiac arrhythmia, which could cause uh, complications even death in this case. And so, a mutation in the uh, uh, A-CAP scaffold protein here that disrupts its interaction with the uh, ion channel result in ine- inefficient regulation of phosphorylation of the channel and this can actually cause arrhythmic uh, uh, this uh, syndrome called Long QT syndrome uh, which affects the uh, pattern of your electric and uh, this can even cause death. So here, just this uh, binding of this complex to the ion channel is enabling very efficient uh, processing of the event. And just in case you wanted to know why it was called Yochiao, apparently this is a type of uh, fried uh, a dough uh, in in Asia, and uh, when they crystallized it, the structure they thought looked awfully like uh, their their breakfast. So mm-hmm. there was a the name. So uh, set little aside. Um, so for so everything's clear there. As, well as the scaffolding proteins. So for the rest of the uh, uh, hour, we're going to talk about uh, uh, protein interaction domains. And so there are many, many different uh, structural domains which can be kind of plugged into different proteins. Normally, the domain is a fairly defined sequence, and the N-terminus and C-terminus are usually pretty close to each other and can just be plugged into a sequence of a protein. And so, for example, the SH2 domain here that you've already encountered. And so there are other um, domains which can interact with different uh, modified peptides, such as phosphoproteins. Uh, proteins which have been acetylated or ubiquinated, for example. Many just proteins recognize certain peptide sequences. We'll cover a couple of these. Uh, many domains actually dimerize with each other or, or recognize other domains. And again this is a way of assembling protein complexes. And then quite often uh phospholipids uh, act as second messengers and there are a number of different proteins which can bind to those and uh, Recruited to membranes in response to uh, changes in the the membrane uh, composition. So there are a lot of these. This uh, diagram was originally done in 2003. It probably isn't even comprehensive. But we're going to touch on looking at four or five of these today just to get a flavor for how this can occur and how they work and how how they're regulated. So SH2 domains you've already encountered. So this is just a little brief revision. So we know that SH2 domains bind to phosphatarosines and they recognize phosphotyrosine in the context of the amino acids just following it. So if you look at a crystal structure of an SH2 domain, there is a uh, deep bucket that has an conserved arginine in the bottom of it, and this actually binds to the phosphate and the phosphaterosine on the uh, the receptor here. And then there's a a long uh, groove here, which is going to bind the amino acid uh, C-terminal to the phosphaterosine. And this is what provides the specificity. So the SOC binding to its SH2 domain, it recognizes some negative charge, and there's a little pocket that binds the hydrophobic amino acid. Phospholipase C gamma recognizes a long hydrophobic stretch of amino acids. And so that way is where the specificity comes from. But without the uh the phosphoterosine to bind to the uh, into this pocket here, then the interaction isn't strong enough for it to occur otherwise. Okay? So our example uh, last week uh, for an SH2 was GRAB2, and we talked about how it also had SH3 domains, which enabled it to bind to to and act as a, an adaptive protein to couple the receptor to an enzyme to achieve biological function. And in addition to GRAB2, there are a number of other uh, adaptive proteins which have very similar, the names don't really matter, just to that they can exist. Whereas other proteins may actually have their own um, uh, couple of mechanism already in them. They have FH2s and FH3s and other uh, protein interaction domains already in them to achieve their, their function. So the um, affinity of FH2s to phosphotyrosine is pretty high. It's in the uh, nanomolar range. And so it's a very strong interaction. The binding, particularly of the uh, uh, phosphotyrosine into, into that deep uh, charge pocket is very high affinity interaction. SH3 domains tend to have a lower affinity for their uh, ligands. And in the case of the the GRAB2, the individual SH3 is a pretty low affinity. But the two together, probably by manipulating the peptide sequence of the target, they end up having a much higher affinity together. So it's much more uh, likely to cause an interaction in in vivo. So the SH3 domains uh, bind to uh, furling-rich motifs. But I just thought I'd just briefly touch on first of where these names come from. So, uh, SARC was the original uh, first phosphotyrosine ever discovered, phosphotyrosine kinase discovered. And they found, when they uh, found that there were a number of, of SARC family members, that they had conservation of uh, three main domains. And so they referred these to the SARC homology domains 1, 2, and 3. They quickly figured out that SARC homology 1 is the kinase domain, seen so you never ever hear of an SH1 domain. The SH2s and 3s, it took them another decade to figure out what they really did. And we know the SH2 now binds to phosphoterazine, and the SH3 binds to choline rich sequences. And there are a number of other uh, non receptor tyrosine kinases, which actually often function to a couple uh, other receptors to uh, kinase activity uh, that actually have these similar makeup. For example, SIRC uh, and ZAP70 here have SH2 domains and the kinase domain, and they are the uh, kinases which actually couple the T-cell and B-cell receptors to intercellular signaling. Mm-hmm. So, the FH3 domain binds the proline-rich motifs. But typically, you need to have a PXXP motif, meaning a proline, two prolines, uh, two amino acids apart, plus additional proline sequence. And here's some examples of different proteins that have those type sequences. If you have a proline-rich uh, sequence, it tends to form uh, an anti-clockwise or left-handed helix uh, with three residues per turn. And with three residues per turn, that means both of these prolines here are going to be on the same surface of the helix. So, in this example here from soft, you've got the sequence here, and so you follow the sequence around here, you have P, X, X, P, and these two prolines are on the same side of the helix, and they sit down into the FH3 domain. SH3 has a lot of uh, prolines and aromatic residues, which are planar, and they're going to line up nicely with the 5-carbon uh, 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 ring of the, uh, of the proline, the ring structure there. And so that's going to actually help them in interaction. And so this is, a, um, this is an example of how the peptide is sitting here in, in a groove in the protein. and so. The SH2 interaction requires the phosphorylation of the peptide before you can have an interaction. Here, you can have constitutive interaction because it's just recognized like a peptide sequence in a protein. Maybe that protein has that sequence, you'll so have a constitutive interaction, just like in the, as in the case of the Grab2 sauce example, that they're permanently brown. In other cases, you may actually have to somehow sterically uh, modify the protein so the PXXP is exposed to be seen. Or you could have phosphorylation close to the site which might prevent the interaction occurring. In fact, in, in SOS, ha- having uh, phosphorescent sites close by disrupts the interaction. So you can actually disrupt the ability of receptor and SOS to bind. This is like a feedback loop to try and turn off the signaling process. Because the enzyme that does this is ERK. If you remember in the le- earlier lecture, I mentioned that ERK likes to phosphorylate uh, serines and threonines close to perlines. And so, in so doing, it may actually disrupt the ability of uh, GRAB2 to, to actually bind to the source protein once the soft is phosphorylated. So just for, again, to kind of look at the concept of SH2 and SH2 interaction, I thought it'd be nice to just look at the SORC itself. The SOC in in kinase, normally, is all kind of bundled up so that its SH2 uh, domain and SH3 domain are actually binding to sequences within itself. So the PXXP motif um, is present in the kinase itself and actually binds to the uh, SH3 domain. And then there is a phosphaterosine near the C terminus, which binds to the SH2 domain. So in a resting state, the kinase is kind of folded up in a fairly inactive state. But when it encounters a alternative uh, phosphaterosine for the SH2 to bind to, it opens up and becomes partially active, and then can uh, phosphorylate. Other stock members on its uh, activation loop and become fully active. Um, Of course, dephosphorylation of this uh, tyrosine here will also facilitate uh, fossil activation. So, here the kinase is actually using itself as a means of keeping itself inactive by binding to uh, fossil tyrosines and PXXP motifs. Okay, so. And then we move on to a different uh, protein international domain, which has the alphabet soup name of uh, PDZ. Uh, I apologize, these names are all horrible. Um, they're all kind of acronyms for things. And so, what happened was three different groups found a PDZ domain in three different proteins. And they all had different names for them. And so to be politically correct, they decided they would take the first initial, initial of all three proteins and make that the domain name, so that all three labs weren't left out in the, in the naming. So P stands for postsynaptic density 95, which is a protein found in the uh, in the neuronal synapse. Uh, Z stands for ZO1, which is a protein in tight junctions, and I think D is disheveled. Um. But uh, the key thing here is that this domain uh, binds to the C termini of proteins, typically uh, fairly hydrophobic C. Terminal peptide sequences. So it's recognizing the carboxy end and the this hydrophobic sequence right here. And um, confession: although I'm telling all these domains have this specificity for certain sequences, there are always exceptions to the rule. And you will encounter there are exceptions. And in the case of the P to Z domain, not only does it bind to hydrophobic C-terminal sequences, it also binds to other P to Z domains. And so you can have PTC dimers as well as PTCs interacting with C-termini. There are other possibilities that are also available. Those are the two common ones, which uh, we'll focus on. So again, this is often a constitutive of interaction because uh, the domain will interact with the sequence um, automatically when it binds the protein. Uh, these domains are more often found in... Uh, neuronal synapses, and in cell-cell junctions, that's where most of the PDZs are are found. And quite often, proteins have multiple PDZ domains, and they essentially act as scaffold proteins, because these individual PDZs can bind to different proteins, bring them all together into a a functional complex. Just like in the Malkanase cascade, the scaffold protein was bringing all the Malkanases together. Here, by virtue of recognizing the C-termini of three individual proteins, PSD95 can bring those three together into a functional complex. So, I chose to look at this one, this table here, D, which is actually a fruit fly protein, a Drosophila protein, which has five of these domains. And just to get an idea of why it exists. So, in the Drosophila I, uh, they have a G-protein-coupled receptor, which responds to, to UV light and activates a, a G-protein. And this G-protein, which is of the GQ family, activates uh, phospholipase C, which you are probably familiar, with generates disloblytherol to activate protein kinase C and IP3 to open uh, calcium channel. And so in the Drosophila then, this cascade results in influx of calcium, and that is what triggers our, the fly's recognition of, of light and movement. And so, as you know, when you try to float a fly, it gets away pretty quickly. So this signal has to be very uh, short-lived and transient. right? So having all these protein proteins clustered together in a complex means you can turn on the process and turn it off very easily. And one way of, of desensitizing the channel is the it with uh, PKC. So all this complex can happen in a, uh, a nanosecond or microsecond. Um, and it can do so because the ion uh can bind to the C-termini of the receptor, the phospholipase, the kinase, and the ion channel. And additionally, the, uh, the scaffold can also bind to uh, a PDZ-PDV interaction with other RNA molecules, so you can have a big cluster of these signal molecules all together and have very rapid uh, signal uh, transition. Okay. So the PTCs are primarily acting as, uh, uh, as a scaffolding uh, module to bring proteins together for efficient uh, signal processes. Okay. So we've. Which uh, one comes next? that one. Okay. Um, so we've looked at a little bit at uh, peptide interactions and so now I'm going to focus on a, uh, a lipid interaction. And the one I'm going to look at is uh, the plexin homology domain or pH domain here. So you can see here that there are various different uh, phosphonositized lipids in the membrane with different uh, uh, phosphate uh, monotides on the nostril ring and these can actually serve uh, as second messenger molecules, as signaling molecules. So Ordinary in the cell, most of the inositol lipid is, is PI. Uh, if it's phosphorylated, particularly on the four position, you generate the, four, uh, the, the PI uh, four phosphate, and subsequently can be phosphorylated on the five position to make PIP two, uh, which is the main substrate in the cell for phospholipase C, which we talked about is the uh, generates diacylglycerol and, and IP three. But the uh, PIP two can also serve as a substrate for a, a PI three kinase. We will add a phosphate to the three position of the nostril ring, making the, uh, the PIP3 here. And this can be recognized by, proprine, by proteins in the cell, which will now be recruited to the membrane in the presence of, of this uh, lipid. So, PI typically makes up like 10% of the intracellular, inner in the, the of the bilayer uh, uh, lipid. PIP is probably a couple percent of that. PIP2, even less of that, and PIP3 is very, very uh, low abundance. So this is just used as a second messenger primarily. So the uh, pH domain gets its name uh, because it was originally discovered in a protein called plexin, uh, which, which had a repeat sequence. that had this two of these domains, and they didn't know what it did at first, and so they just called it the plexin homology domain when they found it in other proteins. And it typically binds to PIP2 and PIP3, and also binds to the uh, the released IP3 phosphorus uh, sugar as well. Again, there are some exceptions to the rule here that some of the pH domains will bind to beta-gamma subunits and to protein kinase C or other lipids, but the majority of them bind to the PI lipids. Um, and so the main function of the pH domain really is to target proteins or recruit proteins to the to, to a membrane. So, uh, For example, uh, phospholipase C, which you just talked about, will cleave PI lipids, uh, has a pH domain in it. And so if there are regions of the membrane which are rich in PIP2, then this pH domain will bind to PIP2 and bring the phospholipase in proximity with its substrate, where it can then uh, promote the uh, cleavage of the PIP2 to IP3 and diseglycerol. This pH domain also binds to the IP3. So as you start generating large amounts of the uh, second messenger, it will bind to the pH domain and help strip the, uh, the enzyme off the membrane so the signal can be terminated. here Here's an example of how the pH domain is really helping, uh, target the, uh, enzyme to a region of the membrane which is rich in its substrate. Uh, there are a number of examples of kinases also, which are recruited to the membrane through interaction with their PH domain. A good example is uh, kinase for AKT, um, which uh, is has a PH domain and kinase domain, and so it gets recruited to the membrane. And at the membrane, it gets uh, subsequently gets phosphorylated by another kinase, and then cannot go off and do its job. And so one of the downstream targets of RAS is PI3 kinase. And so pi 3 will generate the, the, the PIP3, and that will result in the activation of AKT, which can uh, then phospholate various proteins to initiate biological responses relevant to RAS-induced signaling. And incidentally, there's also a phosphatase, which dephosphorylates the, uh, the position, or P10, which is a tumor suppressor. So when it's missing, then you have more PIP3 in the uh, cell membrane and more signaling. Okay, so uh, we're almost done with our different domains, but uh, we touched on how SH2 will recognize a phosphotyrosine, and if you recall, I mentioned the other week that there are far more phosphoserine and threonine sites on proteins than there are phosphaterosine, uh, so it's not too surprising that there are also some domains that can actually recognize uh, the, the, those uh, modules. And the one we're going to look at here is this one here called the 1433. Again, silly name. Uh, they identified this protein back in 1967. Uh, uh, and the numbering actually refers to uh, how they isolated the protein. They collected 14 sample, uh, 1 mil fractions from the column, and the 14th one had this activity, had this protein in it, then tried to separate it for some I think it was um, uh, two-dimensional electrophoresis and it means three centimeters up and three centimeters along on a a two-dimensional gel or something like that. So they had this protein and then they found the whole family of them and they didn't know what they did. So not deterred, they thought, let's just crystallize it and see what it looks like. And they got the three-dimensional structure and the cool thing was that when they did the crystallization, they did it in a phosphate buffer and they found that the phosphate actually sat in the center of the protein. And so they thought, well, what has phosphate on it? And kind so, well, of phosphorylation sites too. So maybe it recognizes the phosphate sequence, and sure enough, it did. So the uh, sequence it actually recognizes is very similar to the site that AKT phosphorylates. So many of, uh, when AKT phosphorylates proteins, quite often what it's doing is creating sites for 1433 to bind to. And a number of examples of those. And I just highlighted two here that we'll just briefly touch on. And incidentally, from this crystal structure, you can see here that 1433 normally exists as a dimer. So the dimer can bind to two different phosphoproteins. Sometimes it can bind just uh, two separate proteins and bind to them. Sometimes it can bind to two different uh, phosphopsyriins on the same protein, maybe, and that's uh, and, and not some influence that way. So just reminding you again, so uh, one protein which is regulated by 1433 is RAF. And so RAF, in its inactive state, is usually phosphorylated. And the 1433, by binding to it at two different sites, helps keep it in inactive state. So it's not going to be uh, having, uh, you're not going to have a, a basal level of mechanase signaling because RAF is on. When RAF activates it, a phosphatase actually, at the membrane, dephosphorylates from these sites. And now 1433 can actually help facilitate the dimerization of RAF, or RAF interaction with scaffold proteins and so now it's actually helping the active RAS function instead. So it's playing a role in the resting and active state. And we mentioned that AKT is also downstream of RAS, and one of the substrates of AKT is BAD, which is regulated, involved in, uh, in apoptosis. So, the way this works is that normally, if BAD interacts with a protein on the mitochondrial membrane, of the BCL family, and you'll get a lot of detail of this in your apoptosis lecture in a couple of weeks. Uh, but basically, if BAD binds to BCL, this will cause uh, membrane permeability, and the mitochondria will leak small molecules and cytochrome C, and this will trigger the cell to, to uh, induce uh, cell death because it knows it has uh, unhealthy mitochondria. But SARAS uh, and AKT are all about cell survival and proliferation. So when AKT phosphorylates uh, BAD, it now can bind to 14-3-3. And if 14-3-3 is bound to BAD, it can no longer interact with BCL, And now the mitochondrial membrane is intact and the cells are happy and they survive. So here's a key way, one of the ways where where RAS through AKT can promote cell survival by uh, phosphorylating BAD and keeping it out of of mischief. And just a reminder, since we're on the RAS pathway, again, in terms of modular domains, the RAS binding domain or RAS association domain that we can have discussed uh, last week that binds to RAS GTP is also another modular domain, which is orchestrating a protein-protein interaction. And you can plug these various RAS domains, binding domains into different proteins, and as a result, they become RAS-effectual proteins. Okay. So, with that... I just want to then summarize the fact we have all these different uh, possibilities of domains, and they can be plugged into different proteins to function. And just some examples here. Uh, We talked about how there are some proteins that are just uh, poly PDZ domains, which can enable different molecules to be recruited together in the complex. We talked about how you have scaffold proteins or adaptive proteins like Grab2, which can help recruit protein A and protein B together. But many proteins that actually evolve with their own interaction motifs. So, this example here, you have a protein which can be recruited to the membrane through a pH domain, can be activated by RAS binding, and also can interact with the proteins through a P PDZ Z domain. And it happens to be an exchange factor for a RAS-related protein. And so, you can imagine how PI signaling could regulate the pH domain, RAS proteins could regulate the R domain, and so there are multiple ways of regulating the activity of, uh, of this particular protein. Um, and so there are quite, they're quite some unwieldy complexes of different domains and some proteins. Um, this helps facilitate the, the cell signaling uh, complexes. OK. That we did. Just as last time, I thought I would just briefly uh, just uh, do a quick review of what we covered. Um, and uh, maybe help use this as the trigger if you have any, any questions to ask about earlier in, in the class. So we talked a little bit about how to... That the uh, we have this kinase cascade of serine threonine kinase, activating a dual specificity kinase, which then phosphorylate the activation loop of ERK, and can regulate various downstream events, such as transcription. And then we have various of these map kinase cascades. In order to actually create specificity, and efficiency, we have uh, um, scaffold proteins, and these can work through uh, helping recruit proteins together in certain locales uh, and in certain complexes to enable regulation. I uh, touched on how in the Mount Cascade, the MEC protein needs to actually uh, have a docking site in order to phosphorylate ORC, uh, and if you can uh, destroy that uh, with uh, bacterial prote- proteases then you can actually uh, disable max signaling or make it less efficient again if you actually have disruptions in this signaling process then you can actually uh, result in, in diseases and then we went through various uh, protein interaction modules we revised on uh, SH2 and ras binding domain modules we talked about SH3 domains which are primarily bind to proline motifs of this PXXP uh, minimal sequence to enable protein-protein interactions, but often constitutively. The uh, 1433 binds to phosphosphorine, um, often downstream of AKT signaling, and can often titrate proteins away from places or uh, enable dimerization to occur. PH domains uh, help bring membrane, uh, proteins into the membrane, uh, most often through binding to the phospho head groups of the nostal rings. And uh, PDZ domains, are often in concert with other PDZs, can act as uh, scaffolds to bring various proteins into the uh, synaptic junctions and uh, tight junctions. And many proteins have multiple of these domains to actually help them to respond to more than one uh, input or to orchestrate a protein complex to be formed. Okay? Any questions? Cool. All right.